This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for August 31st, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal. I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. And today we're also joined by Sumya Swaminathan. Sumya is a pediatrician who's well known for her research in tuberculosis. She was Director General of the Indian Council of Medical Research, and in 2017, she was named Deputy Director General of the World Health Organization. In March 2019, she became the WHO chief scientist. And of course, that was a fateful time as the first cases of COVID-19 appeared later that year. So yeah, let's start by talking about the role of the WHO during an outbreak. Many of our listeners are familiar with the US CDC and how it works. In what ways is the WHO similar and in what ways is it different? Thank you very much, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be with the NEJM today talk about WHO. As you know, WHO is made up of 194 member states. And so I think that's the first difference between a national CDC, of which there are many, public health agency, and the WHO, because we cater to 194 countries from high income, middle to low income. Our main job or focus really is on developing norms and standards, so guidelines on all aspects of disease prevention, promotion, and this includes communicable diseases, non-communicable diseases, but also health emergencies. Now, when there is an emergency, an outbreak or an epidemic that happens, then our actions actually span everything from, again, developing the technical guidance for what countries should do, what the public should do, what health workers should be doing, you know, how does a disease spread, what are the immediate actions to be taken on the ground to prevent further spread in case it's a new disease or a new virus, like we saw in the case of SARS-CoV-2, then of course, we have to rely on prior existing knowledge from maybe similar pathogens or similar viruses. And then as the science comes in and the data comes in, we have to keep on refining our guidance. And that's what happened with SARS-CoV-2. We also have to be very attuned uh, or sensitive to the fact that we cater to very different populations. And the way we do that is through our regional offices that we have six of, and we have about 150 country offices. So our guidelines are actually contextualized to the country-specific context by our country offices that work very closely with ministries of health, but also with other partners on the ground, including other UN agencies like the UN and so on. And then maybe I just add one more point, and that is that while agencies like the US CDC or other public health agencies basically have traditionally focused on the health of their own populations, I think we need to increasingly recognize that there are many, many things in common between the health of people across the world, that even high-income countries suffer from some of the same illnesses that low-income countries do because there are poor and rich populations in every country. And there are many things to learn from each other. And we saw during COVID, that sometimes the response of the low-income countries that are used to having a much more decentralized, community-based, health worker-type approach, public health response, in some ways was perhaps more effective than a very medicalized approach of high-income countries. So I think that's a good platform that WHO provides across countries. So as a multinational organization, the WHO necessarily works by consensus. How do you reach agreement when the situation is as urgent as it has been during a pandemic? So I think this has been a challenge for all of us, I think for all public health doctors and scientists. While on the one hand, 
you want to be as quick as possible because it's really a question about how to stop transmission and how to save lives. On the other hand, you also want to have your recommendations based on science. And while in a non-emergency situation, one has the luxury of waiting for more randomized clinical trials to come in before we update our guidance, in the case of an emergency, the path that has to be followed is use the data, whatever data is available, but also use a precautionary principle where you put in place some actions which are aimed to save lives or to prevent transmission, even though you may not have the highest quality evidence. Now, in terms of how we do our guidelines, we have scientific groups, technical advisory groups, or guideline development groups. They are addressing a particular question, and we have many, many of those in WHO. They're all external expert advisory groups, and they are the ones who actually look at the evidence. They look at the systematic reviews, then have a discussion on the benefits, the risks, or the pros and cons, you know, depending on what the question is. And they also look at things like what would be the public health impact, what is the ethics around uh, the recommendation and equity considerations. And then a recommendation is then made to the director general on a particular topic. Now, we do have situations where the committee cannot agree or where there is diversity of opinion and we're not able to come to a consensus. And we actually welcome that because I think that tells us that we do have the right diversity of people in the room. Not everybody's thinking alike. So I think having those disagreements and different views is good. We welcome it. And what we then try to do is obviously to continue having the discussions and come to an agreement one way or the other. There Very rarely there would be a document which makes a recommendation where some of the experts are not in agreement and that might be noted. And uh, even rarer is a situation where the organization of the director general actually makes a decision. I think this happened with monkeypox. We saw that the first time the emergency committee met, they decided that it was not time to declare a public health emergency of international concern. The DG accepted that recommendation. He reconvened them again about a month later, by which time the cases of monkeypox in many countries had gone up. So the number of countries affected and the number of cases had gone up significantly. At this time, the committee was still divided on whether or not it constituted a health emergency. And there were reasons for that. And the director general then took a decision, actually, to declare it as a public health emergency. So we also have that responsibility. The WHO does have a global responsibility of being sort of the caretaker of, of the health of people worldwide. And while most of the time we do work by consensus, there is the occasional case where we take action on the basis of the best available evidence and guidance and data and, and what we think is best for the public health around the world. Sumya, the COVID outbreak has been perhaps more problematic than some in that there's been a political overlay in the implementation of many of the recommendations that varies tremendously from country to country. How much do internal politics of various countries play a role in the input that WHO gets? Or is the decision uh, to make a recommendation truly an isolated panel of experts? Yes, it's a, it's a good point because, as I said, we are supposed to service 194 countries. And it is difficult to make a recommendation that suits everyone or that can be implemented everywhere. 
So what we do is to try to focus on the science. And in fact, we've made a lot of innovation during the COVID pandemic on trying to really go into a whole new way of doing our guidelines and recommendations, something that we call living guidelines, which means that we update recommendations, even individual recommendations within a large guideline is updated whenever there's a need to change that recommendation. However, having said that, ultimately, these global guidelines need to be adopted, adapted if necessary, and implemented in countries. And that's really the responsibility of the ministries of health in those countries or of individual doctors for that matter, if they're in the private sector. And so we cannot enforce our guidelines to be used, but in the cases where clearly a big public health issue we work very closely with the concerned ministries, usually Ministry of Health, but sometimes it's the Ministry of Environment or Water and Sanitation that we might be working with to address a particular risk factor for health, like air pollution or water and sanitation. We've just released a report showing that 50% of health facilities globally do not have you know, water sanitation. They don't have running water and soap. So this is a big risk for health workers. It's also a risk for antimicrobial resistance. So it is our job to collect that kind of data and then do advocacy around it. So the guideline is made by a diverse global group of experts, but then the implementation of that guideline is up to individual countries. Samia, as you point out with a pandemic that's rapidly changing and new data are emerging quickly, that can lead to confusion. Guidelines can get stale. Guidelines can change quickly. Recommendations change quickly. What we've seen from this, in part, is a epidemic of misinformation, disinformation, or an appearance of uh, flip-flopping or confusion. How does the WHO and how should we as a community manage this rapidly changing evidence base and maintain the trust of our colleagues globally as what should be done in managing something like SARS-CoV-2 in their clinics? That is a very good question, and I'm not sure that... uh there is a very good, clear answer to this. And that is because uh, when we are faced with a situation where there's a lot of uncertainty, where things do change, our understanding of the disease has changed so much. I mean, I think airborne transmission is a good example of something that has evolved so much over the last two years. Our understanding has evolved because of the contribution of many scientists around the world, including engineers and others who had not worked in this field before, but who brought their expertise. And I think it's going to change the field. It's going to really hopefully help us prevent airborne pathogens in a much more effective manner now that we understand how it spreads. But we've also learned so much about immunology and, uh, and there are still questions that need to be answered. And so I think the first place that we have to start from and that we usually try to tell the public is, look, Today, we're talking to you based on what we know. And our guidance today is based on the current understanding or knowledge base. But as this evolves, we will keep on updating our guidance. Now, to a lay person, I think this could appear that we are confused or we don't know what we're talking about or or being a scientist, you know, we should have known it all from the beginning. And I think the whole uh, process and science as such has come to the fore in a, in a way that it's never done before. But perhaps the complete understanding of how science works, maybe we haven't done a good job of explaining that. The other thing you mentioned is misinformation. Now, there is some that's really a, a, a sort of a misunderstanding or, or a misinterpretation by people who don't understand what we are saying. So again, I think being able to communicate in simple language is very important. Being transparent and humble is important. But there is also, unfortunately, 
there are people who are purposely spreading disinformation and rumors and undermining scientific advice. And there, I'm afraid that the ways to tackle that are not straightforward. Uh, social media has amplified everything. So it's helped us communicate, but it's also helping people spreading disinformation. So we've been doing a lot of work. It's an area which needs much more, I think, uh, attention going forward. It's a multidisciplinary field. We call it infodemiology. Uh, the DG, in fact, said right at the beginning of the pandemic in February 2020, Dr. Tedros said that the infodemic is as dangerous as the viral pandemic. And so, you know, he was really highlighting the fact that misinformation can do so much harm to people. We've seen how vaccine uptake has been affected in some countries because of misinformation. So it's a, an area, I think, of more research that's going to be needed and more experts, both social science, behavioral scientists, economists, and doctors need to come together and, and work also with the big technology companies, as we have been doing over the last two years, the social media companies, to see how we can minimize this, because it has a detrimental effect on people's health. So speaking of vaccines, some manufacturers have started coming out with new antigens to try to target the viral variants that are currently circulating or that were recently circulating. It's a bit of a confusing time because different countries are setting different guidelines. Do you think we run the risk of having the situation we did back at the beginning of the pandemic, where many people around the world won't have access to the latest vaccines? This is something that um, we're obviously very interested in and watching carefully. And we have an expert advisory group that's called the TAG COVAC, the Technical Advisory Group on COVID Vaccine Composition that was set up about a year ago. Now, they came out with a report encouraging developers of vaccines to try and develop vaccines which have broader and more longer lasting immunity. And they proposed several approaches to that. One of them, of course, being variant adapted vaccines, but acknowledging the fact that with variant adapted vaccines, one might always be in a situation of playing catch up because you would start developing a vaccine once a variant was identified by the time you did it. Six months down the line, you might have a new variant that had started circulating globally. So that's a risk. So the other approach is to really go for more broadly protective vaccines, a pan-coronavirus vaccine or a vaccine that might have many different antigens from the virus so that even if the spike protein, there's, there are mutations, perhaps there are other parts or well-conserved parts that might continue to protect. And of course, then stimulating cell-mediated immunity as well. So that was a recommendation made. Now, of course, many companies have gone ahead and developed variant-adapted vaccines. The mRNA vaccines have been the first to come out. And we have seen countries make recommendations for the use of these variant-adapted vaccines. Now, what we don't have at the moment is a lot of clinical data on the relative advantage of these vaccines over the vaccines that were based on the original virus strain in terms of being when it's used as a booster or when it's used as a primary vaccination. So I think this is an area where we need more data, both for the BA1 bivalent vaccine as well as the BA5 bivalent vaccine. We will need more data. And so the WHO at the moment is, is not recommending a, a, a switch. We also have to recognize that we still have a significant proportion of people around the world who have not received their primary course of vaccination. And if you look at the African continent, we still have 73% of people there 
that's a huge number of people who still have not received a primary course of vaccination, let alone a booster, or let alone talking about a fourth dose or a fifth dose. So while on the one hand, we will continue to make the recommendations, again, based on the most recent science, and we will move to a variant-adapted vaccine recommendation if we find the data showing that there's a clear advantage in either the breadth of the immune response or the longevity of the immune response. However, our focus still very much on getting those people vaccinated who still have not been. And you know there are many reasons why this has not happened. It's not just in Africa, though the Africa does have a large proportion of these people. It's also in other parts of the world. And so I think we are prioritizing, especially the high-risk groups in those countries to get their first two doses and then get their booster when we know that they will be protected from future waves. And maybe I'll just say about the inequities that we've had, there is, yes, a high risk that there will continue to be inequities if these new vaccines actually are found to work better and the whole world then needs them, then we will again be faced with the same situation. So this is why we are already talking to the manufacturers as well as to countries that have pre-booked these doses saying, let's make sure that we have equity when it comes to access to these vaccines. Sumya, the two problems that you talked about um, are obviously interrelated. The development of new vaccines made that much more difficult when a lot of people aren't receiving the current vaccines so that there's not clearly a market. And there hasn't been a lot of investment by governments this time around in making new generations of vaccines, the kinds that you described that might induce different types of immunity. Are there government, multinational and international ways of trying to both incentivize the research and increase the uptake of vaccines throughout the world? No, indeed, but it's very important because I think when we talk about pandemic preparedness for the future and also when we talk about handling all of the other infectious and non-communicable diseases that affect people around the world, it's important to diversify the capacity for both R&D and manufacturing. So one of the things that we've done is to set up a technology transfer program, starting with mRNA, but hopefully extending to other technologies, where the idea really is to democratize the availability of knowledge regarding new technology and encourage research and innovation in countries around the world in different regions so that we will have facilities that might be quickly able to make vaccines for the next epidemic or pandemic. But in the interim, we'll also be able to develop vaccines new generation vaccines for existing diseases and for diseases where we do not have good vaccines like TB or, or malaria or HIV, uh, but also diseases like dengue and diseases like Nipah and Lassa, fever and, and rabies and so on, which still kill uh, a lot of people. So, so the technology transfer program is, is our uh, initiative to try to do that. We have 16 countries now in this network and they're already beginning to discuss among themselves what the mRNA technology can be used for. We very much hoped that Moderna and Pfizer would be part of this initiative, would help to share knowledge, would, would train scientists in these countries. Uh, that has not happened, but that has not stopped us from going forward. And in fact, as you probably know, the South African mRNA hub has already developed a vaccine which is very similar to the one that Moderna had, you know, just using public information. And that vaccine will now go into clinical studies. But during a pandemic, you actually need technology transfer and knowledge sharing. 
because otherwise, if they're only a handful of companies have the know-how and they are all located in parts of the world, in, in a few parts of the world that then capture all the vaccines for themselves, then we'll have the same inequity and the regional inequity that we saw this time around. So this is why we believe it's important to do this. We also believe it's important that governments must invest in R&D. I think it's because of the years of investment in these new technologies using public funds that we were able to see so quickly the mRNA vaccines now being developed for SARS-CoV-2. So clearly science will provide solutions for our health problems for future pandemics as well as others. And we have to invest in science and innovation. So my, the innovation so we have better vaccines is critically important, particularly as new variants and new pathogens emerge. But I just want to understand better in this technology transfer that is being built. Will that have manufacturing capacity? Because that is one of the unseen bottlenecks in being able to have product available for everybody. So is that part of this development plan? Yes, it is part of the development plan. And this is where the investment from governments as well as the private sector will come in because the WHO is not into the business of building manufacturing plants. And therefore, the resources for that will come from elsewhere. But what we do is bring technical experts to help these hubs actually develop mRNA. And then, you know, it will be a network of people who will be sharing data and information. We're also working with CEPI. The CEPI is going to be providing also funding for some of these initiatives. So over the next couple of years, I think we will see a much more vibrant R&D ecosystem, but that has to be linked with, with manufacturing and it's, it's already being done. So when we identify an mRNA hub in a country, it has to be a manufacturing facility, could be private or public sector, but with the support of the government so that we know that there'll be some sustainability. The other side also that we do uh, is the R&D blueprint for epidemics, which was set up you know, in 2016 to prepare for research before, during, and after pandemics. And I must say that I think it paid off this time. It was set up after Ebola. And very quickly after we identified SARS-CoV-2, the R&D blueprint actually came into the picture. We, we had hosted many meetings, continue to host meetings uh, to develop a research roadmap, to bring scientists together from around the world, to set the benchmarks, but also to share knowledge. In fact, we have a, a meeting going on just now on what have we learned from this pandemic and, and how do we prepare for the next one? So I think just bringing scientists and researchers together, I think, and, and the open sharing of information that we've seen, I think that's been quite unprecedented and has really helped inform policies around the world. Sumaya, so the clinical data, as you pointed out, often take a little bit longer to generate compared with some of the in vitro or preclinical data. Given that the vaccines for BA1, BA5 for SARS-CoV-2 are emerging and being recommended in different ways by different countries, how do we prevent the confusion that that will generate, given that the science is imperfect and is in process? I think the best way to do that is perhaps to be very open about it. I mean, sometimes, you know, you have to take policy decisions even when the science is imperfect, you can't always wait for the perfect science. And I think it's reasonable to do that if you're assured of the safety of the products. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to go ahead and say, we think we're going to better protect our public. Uh, if we do this, we're going to use the variant adapted vaccines in this case. But 
also add that we will collect the necessary data because we don't have the clinical efficacy data. We're going to collect that. And within the next few months, we will be able to assess whether or not that decision was right or not. Now, it may show that there's an advantage or minimal advantage. It may show that there's no advantage over the vaccines we currently have. But so I think in, in, a, in a case like this, where one is confident about the safety of the product, which because it's a similar product, that's been used in many people, it should be fine to go ahead. But at the same time, I think we have to commit to generating that data as quickly as possible. So that's a national decision. And that's perfectly within, I think, the rights of a country to do that. As far as WHO is concerned, since again, we have to make a guideline for the world, we have rare instances where we would probably do that. And in this particular case, I think we will likely wait for a couple of months to see the data coming out of these variant adapted vaccines from vaccine effectiveness studies. Some countries, notably the United States, have been emphasizing antiviral therapies. So how do you see treatment fitting into global efforts to combat COVID-19? I think treatments have not been given the importance that they deserve, especially antiviral treatments. I think we need a lot more global R&D investments in developing particularly broad-spectrum antivirals. Now, we were lucky with SARS-CoV-2 that we were able to develop such effective vaccines. But again, we saw with Omicron, the variant Omicron, the efficacy against symptomatic infection dropped dramatically. And therefore, you still need the other tools, namely the drugs, the antiviral drugs, and potentially monoclonal antibodies, which again, we saw that as variants kept changing, the monoclonal antibodies lost their efficacy. So we need more research. And unfortunately, with uh, the antivirals that we have today, uh, they are not widely accessible. Paxlovid is being used in, in, in some countries, but in large parts of the world, it is not yet available. And uh, we're very concerned about this because, you know, we, we will continue to see people falling sick regardless of, uh, you know, all the other tools. And despite high vaccination coverage, we will continue to see people getting ill and they will need access to these drugs. And we have not been able to ensure equitable access to these drugs, despite all our efforts. Now, Pfizer has licensed this to, to the medicines patent pool. So we will see generic manufacturers coming in, but not till early to mid 2023. So there's still many months where we do not have access. And I think that is a problem. And for the future, I think one of the things that to prepare for the next pandemic, probably we need to do is more research on antivirals, but also monoclonal antibodies, when they were showing promise at the beginning of the pandemic, again, were in very short supply and were very expensive because they were being made by very few companies. So part of our technology transfer program, we hope will also enable manufacturers in diverse countries to start making monoclonal antibodies because we know that they have a lot of potential for treatment not just of infectious diseases, but also for things like cancer. Today, the WHO is faced with the challenge of dealing with two simultaneous outbreaks, SARS-CoV-2 and monkeypox. Given that there's only so much expertise within the WHO, how do you manage your resources in a circumstance like this? Yes, that's a very good question. I mean, I think, you know, the, the WHO's... Uh, annual budget is something like two, two and a half billion dollars. And we're supposed to serve, you know, the whole world. So with very limited resources. So we manage because we're dealing, you mentioned COVID and monkeypox, but actually we're dealing with emergencies 
uh, many more emergencies. We have a, a, another Ebola outbreak. We had a Marburg threat in Ghana a few months ago. We have Ukraine, a, a lot of health issues there. Also Yemen and Syria and other conflict areas. And now we are seeing looming starvation in both the Horn of Africa as well as in the Sahel. So actually the humanitarian needs around the world are growing. And unfortunately, a lot of this is because of geopolitics. And I think the world needs to wake up and see that people are dying, not just of uh, bullets in wars, but the after effects of these really is starvation and, and the lack of access to health. So it's a very difficult situation. Now, WHO cannot solve the geopolitics. And so we do what we can do, and that is look out, try and look after the health of people, try and support the ministries on the ground. So we, of course, work a lot with partners, and uh, that is how we are able to manage. We have collaborating centers around the world that step up, and there are always people willing to work with the WHO when called upon. And so we you know, set up these expert groups that then provide advice on prevention, on treatment. But again, with monkeypox, we have had challenging uh, environment again with access to both vaccines as well as treatment. So we've had to deal with that. And, and there are, again, many unknowns. It's a very unusual outbreak that we have seen with monkeypox. And we have to remember that we also have monkeypox in Africa that traditionally you know, has been a zoonotic disease in the DRC affecting mostly young people. And so we need, we're really stepping up, uh, I think our advocacy for more research into the strategies to contain monkeypox and including both vaccine trials and drug trials. So one of the, I think lessons for me from the pandemic is really the need to have a coordinated research response. And ideally in an outbreak, you would launch very quickly multi-country clinical trials that could answer some of the questions that we're asking now, you know, about the dose of the vaccine, can we use it at a lower dose? Is one dose enough? You know, what should be the ideal duration? So we could build many of these questions if we had a large enough trial platform that countries would agree to quickly be part of. Somebody needs to coordinate and run those kind of studies. So we're speaking with many research agencies that fund such research into saying like, how do we get this, this coordination? and run high-quality clinical trials, which will answer the questions that are important for public health. We saw in COVID, you know, thousands of trials. Most of them were too small, underpowered, did not answer the question that they set out to answer. There were very few large platform trials that did that. So we need to learn the lesson from that and, and be more efficient about it. Sumia, I, I point out that along with the emergencies, which get a lot of attention, WHO has a huge responsibility for ongoing disease prevention and disease treatment. Obviously, you and I are both very interested in tuberculosis, and WHO's role in tuberculosis is very large. As you have pointed out, there's been a very large increase in TB during the COVID outbreak, in part because of lack of access to health care. And this is one of many problems that are on your plate at all times. So very difficult situation to manage and particularly difficult when there are all of these very urgent needs as well. Yes, indeed. Uh, there are many competing priorities, and this is why the only way, I think, is, is not by choosing this or that, but really by committing to saying, well, you know, the health of people is important, and we need to invest more in health. So every country really needs to start investing much more in health so that TB is not fighting with 
hypertension and is not fighting with cancer for resources. All of them are important. And we've seen during the pandemic a backsliding of progress that we had made in immunization, maternal and child health, tuberculosis, HIV. We've seen backsliding in, in all of the indicators. We're not going to meet the SDGs unless we accelerate progress. And the only way to do that is if every country says, I make health a priority. Because without people being healthy, the economies are not going to be healthy. And I think this is, again, even high-income countries, I would say, need to do this assessment because we've seen the inequities within countries, right? So within the US, within UK, within high-income, we've seen the communities that were traditionally disadvantaged fared very badly. And they already have a high under background rate of uh, disease and ill health. So I think it's a wake-up call that we haven't been paying attention, not just to curative services, but also to health promotion and prevention of disease and addressing some of the social and environmental determinants of disease. So yes, it's a big ask, but I think it's critical because if we don't look at health in a holistic way, then um, yeah, we are not going to live very healthy lives in the future. Thank you, Sumya, for joining us today. And thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.